as you turn to Acts chapter 16 in your Bibles, that's where we're at, picking up on part three of a series in Acts, we return. There are study guides available out there above the bulletins if you want to take home. I recently told our neighbor Ralph, Ralph and Sharon, I believe are in Lewiston today, but that a lot has seemed to change. We all see it, but whether it be church members dying, relationships that need prayer, people moving in like crazy. (laughs) I told Ralph, it's John Pitts' fault. (laughs) If you remember John Pitts, he passed away last September, but before he passed away, he prayed for the community every single morning. And I mean every word in that sentence in the most literal and fullest sense. He prayed for everyone in the community every morning. And I know because I had to sit through a few of those prayers. Now I know he was retired. He was single. He had time to do that. I believe it was Martin Luther who said something along the lines that if he had busier days, he decided he should get up earlier in the morning since he had more to pray for. We don't think that way. At least I don't. The correlation between any outside problems in the world we might feel, the schedule of our days, the stress of our days, and and how much we live out our faith should not be separated should not be, well, I have too much stuff going on, so I need to tone down on the Jesus stuff. Because in a Christian worldview, they should be one and the same. Who I am, how I act, what I do, how I engage the world, is who I am before God, how I act as God's child, what I do for His glory, and how I engage the world in His mission. There should, there is no, and there should be no, schedule item one, what I want to do, schedule item two, what God wants me to do. So, saying I'm too busy for Christian stuff, for what Jesus wants me to do, is a bad excuse. (laughs) Today, we read about Paul and his companions being too busy to be deterred. I invite you to stand with me one last time if you're able to, and let's read Acts 16, verses 1 through 15 together. We read, Paul went on to Derbe and Lystra, where where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman. But his father was a Greek. The brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled through the towns, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem for the people to observe. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in number in numbers. They went through the uh, the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. 
When they came to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, Cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, we had immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace and the next day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of the district of Macedonia. We stayed in that city for several days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the woman gathered there, a God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Aren't you glad I went to Bible college to pronounce all those city names? Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we... Some of us feel like we're reading an itinerary and we we ask ourselves, what are what are we going to get out of this? But Father, there's so much happening behind the scenes. We, we forget we're not reading an itinerary. We're reading about real people who didn't use planes or cars, who gave great considerable effort to traverse so much land and geography to get your word to people. And we forget that these are people like us. You didn't empower them to be Batman and Superman. You were dealing with human beings like us. Father, may that convict us today. We pray that you would speak to our hearts and our minds as we read these words that, Father, it would be your voice and not mine. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do what you did in Lydia's heart and our heart. Open up our heart and mind to receive your word, to understand what you're saying. And we ask and pray this in the power and name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You may be seated. We're not done yet. But... Nope. We're catching up with Paul and Silas in a real world. And what I mean by real world is we need to get our head out of the this is the familiar Bible or this is storybook time. But we're catching up with Paul and Silas on the edge of a few things. First of all, a huge church council just happened for Paul and Silas. Arguably the biggest church council the Bible records that the church universal at the time decided that God had been revealing that the Messiah, Jesus, is the Savior of the world, not just the Jews, what we talked about reading in Romans 4. It was a common belief of ancient peoples that gods were national leaders and national saviors. And so Yahweh was the Hebrew or the Jewish God. Why would he care about other people? He certainly didn't want his own people to seek out non-Jews to be saved. Well, that is until Jesus showed up and proved otherwise. And actually, I would even say there were subtle and sometimes blatant hints in the Old Testament that Yahweh set his sights on the world. 
Jesus was preaching at non-Jews, healing non-Jews. And when Peter and Paul hit the scene, providence time and time again brought them into contact with non-Jews to preach the gospel. Until finally the council, the church decided, hey, Jesus is not just for Jews, he's for the whole world. Now this is big news, and some of you are like, you already lost me, I need to go to bed, Kevin. But this is really big news. It changes the game for everyone. And one thing that precipitated this, though, was that what Paul was doing beforehand. Antioch, right up here. One of the biggest cities of its time, it was the top three with, with Alexandria and Egypt, or with Alexandria, Egypt, and then Rome. So we're talking about the difference between L.A., New York, and Chicago. <laughs> Only in, in that day, Rome and Alexandria and Antioch had zilch churches. <laughs> so planting a church in a big city was a big deal with lots of room to take off, and Antioch takes off. It is already in, excuse me, it is already in Gentile territory and it's taking off, uh, actually going over here and it's going into further Gentile territory. And this all happened before the council that met and said, yes, Gentiles can be saved. So the council was a reaction of what was already happening. And suddenly the entire church confirms, hey, what Antioch church is doing is what the entire church needs to be doing. God is saving Gentiles. This is a big perspective changing deal. But on a much smaller scale, sadly, the dynamic duo that went out into Gentile territory and did the church planning, this was Paul's first trip. He actually started going down to Cyprus and then went up here. But Paul was with a guy named Barnabas. And what just happened is Paul and Barnabas split up. Paul and Barnabas headed out into the missions field to a bunch of Gentiles. They're really in modern day Turkey. And at the beginning of a, their missions trip, a man named John Mark, probably the same Mark who wrote that book of the Bible, headed out with them. And then for reasons unknown to us, he split and head home prematurely. The author of Acts never told us why he did that, but the author of Acts, Luke, told us that Paul knew and he made clear that the reason that Mark left was reason enough to not take him out again. Well, Barnabas disagreed and Barnabas wanted to give Mark another chance. Paul was not okay with that matter, so he picked another guy named Silas. <laughs> not that Silas, but uh, picked another guy named Silas and he said, have fun, Barnabas and Mark were headed out. That's not in the Bible, but... This was a real world with real people and real problems. This problem, this setback, it doesn't deter Paul, though, and it doesn't deter Barnabas. Paul strikes me as a stubborn man, almost unable to be deterred, but we can learn from this. Setbacks, sins, my failures do not by God's grace, and that's not just a saying, that's the truth. By God's grace, my failures do not have to deter me. My disobedience is the only thing that deters me from accomplishing what God has for his mission on my life. Paul and company are too busy to be deterred. We, we read about this in light of three 
truths, three movements in our study today. Sacrificial busyness. Then we're going to look at selective seed throwing, a nod to Jesus' parable of the four soils that Everett read for us. And then we're going to look at salvation and settling. And because I went to Bible college, I made them all start with S. You're welcome. Sacrificial busyness, selective seed throwing, and salvation and settling. First, we see sacrificial busyness in verses 1 through 5 here. We see Paul went on to Derby and Lystra, where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was a Greek. The brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled through the towns, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem for the people to observe, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. We think backwards than what the Bible would have us think. We think this way. What's my career? And then, where does church and doing Christian stuff fit into that? The Bible seems to point our lives this way. I'm a child of God, a Christian, His. How is my career going to yield to that? How is my faith, which is first and foremost, going to dictate the rest of my life? That's how it should be. I know all of you don't mess up this way when you read the Bible, so this will just be a confession time for me. But I have a tendency to look at the New Testament apostles and Paul in this weird, esoteric light where I say, well, these men, completely different from us, had their entire vocations wrapped up in ministry that Jesus hand-selected for them. Yes and no. Yes, Jesus hand-selected these special men for the task of building the church. But what do we think Jesus calls us to do? When he calls us, is it not to completely reorient our lives, to crucify ourselves, and live our lives in light of his calling? Everything else is subordinate to that. Kevin, are you saying we all need to be pastors like you? No. I'm saying teacher, retired, grandparent, farmer, rancher, or even pastor. That's all subordinate to the real significant calling that Christ has called us into ministry. I know a lot of pastors, and I might be one too, that are lousy children living out God's entire call in our lives. Paul was a Pharisee, theologian, missionary, tent maker, But he always opened his letters, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, called out by him. Paul, sinful, real-world Paul who just broke up with his buddy Barnabas over John Mark, that Paul went on to Derby and Lystra. We're assuming from Antioch going up to Derby and Lystra. Seven English words, but that was 80 miles along a rough cut road, through a narrow passage, the Cilician Gates. Can you imagine that without being blasted out? 
indeed a trek that many a men likely would have turned back. They don't have cabs, taxis, airplanes. They have hiking and caravans. Now, I can hear it now because I would be one of them. That's a lot of preparation. (laughs) Where are they going to get their food? And then, this is back into the regions where they had planted churches in the first missionary journey in Galatia. This is the region where Paul would write one of his letters to. And he's going back here. That was the plan at the end of chapter 15 when Paul and Barnabas split. Let's go and see how they're doing. But I can hear it now. Is it worth it? There's already churches there. (laughs) There's already a lot of work. And that work could be towards new regions and places that we haven't visited. Not to mention that Paul is headed back to where he had been stoned before and chased out of town. But Paul is too busy to be deterred. Paul went on to Derby and Lystra where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman. But his father was a Greek. The brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of them. We have letters from Paul to this Timothy in our Bibles. Paul calls him Timothy, my true son in the faith. And because of this language, some suggest that while Timothy had a mom and grandmother who were believers, it could be that Paul had um, ministered to them and they all became saved under his ministry. It could be that Paul was a spiritual father to Timothy in the sense of leading him to salvation. And then we see here him taking on more full time under his wing. Sadly, and ironically, discipleship in many churches is a lost practice. Now, I'm hearing the term more and more at church conferences and discipleship and discipling seems to be a trending, as they would call it, word in many churches, which is good, but it's sad that it has to be a new trending word. What I mean by discipleship is spiritual mentors and students. Do you have a relationship like that? Do you teach someone Christianity by doing life with them? Do you learn Christianity by doing life with someone? I had a mentor at Valley View Nazarene, and I still call him up, visit him, talk to him here and there in a mentor capacity. When Jesus built what I like to call Jesus' first church, (laughs) He built it on discipleship, memorizing and talking over Scripture with one another, struggling, calling up that other person, pray for me, do you have advice, can you keep me accountable? Trouble hits the family or the town or the neighborhood, can we go grab some coffee and talk about this and pray about this? Discipleship. Now I know, I know, I don't have the time. But Paul's too busy to be deterred. He's he's too busy doing what Christ calls him to do. He's too busy doing the things he needs to be doing, but that he can't be deterred by me time. It's a sacrificial busyness. It's sacrificial because you have to sacrifice things that sound more fun to preoccupy your time. I dare you to pray, God, would you have for me a discipleship relationship? I know me, Kevin, I'm 31, so find someone, if not in this church, this is your pastor saying, there are a lot of godly folks across our community maybe better suited for you to call up and say, I've been reading the Bible. Jesus had 12 disciples. Timothy, Titus, Luke, they all seem to be companions and disciples of Paul. John the Baptist had disciples. Can you and I develop a spiritual relationship? I just dare you to pray about that. 
Well, that takes a lot of time. I know. <laughs> I just dare you to pray about that. I'll just leave that there. Speaking of sacrifices, look at this here in verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now here's the interesting thing. In context, we just had this huge council about accepting Gentiles into the church, and among the necessities of that council, never did they say, make sure they're circumcised. Like, I'm sure there's a lot of Gentile Christian men who took a sigh of relief when that revelation was handed down. No need to be circumcised. Furthermore, Paul has some strong words against those who would press everyone to be circumcised. In his letter to the Galatians, Galatians 5, he says, As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. So, some look at these facts. The Jerusalem Council, and I personally take an early writing of the book of Galatians. I actually believe Paul wrote it right before the Jerusalem Council, because if he wrote it after, you think he might mention the council. But if Paul feels this adamant about not circumcising people needlessly, why did he, to use the language of Acts 16.3, take Timothy and circumcise him because of the Jews? Now, Timothy's an interesting case. His mother was Jewish, his grandmother was Jewish, but his father was Greek. It could be that the Greek father didn't care to have him circumcised. We're likely led to believe that Timothy's father was neither a practicing Jew or a converted Christian since he was Greek. 2 Timothy 1.5 tells us that Timothy's mom and grandma were Christians. So I, I don't know if Timothy's mom and grandma were practicing Jews beforehand. But whatever the case, it's likely that Timothy's Greek dad kept them from being circumcised. And Paul was heading into areas where Jewish synagogues were already set up. And Paul had a philosophy of ministry that goes like this. He says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. He says, I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. Paul wants to enter Jewish synagogues as he comes to towns. And if he does so, bringing along a local relative named Timothy, excuse me, he's not a relative, but a local, I should say a relative local, <laughs> there we go, named Timothy, who's likely known. And will there already be a barrier in the way? Will they be saying, why are you bringing that uncircumcised half-breed in here? No, he's circumcised. Timothy's not ashamed of his mother. So do you see that's breaking a barrier already of ministry? But that's foreign to us because we live in American, rugged, individualistic, trailblazing, don't apologize for yourself, you be you. And Paul says, anything to win people for, to Christ. <laughs> I'm too busy to deter from getting people to Christ. So Timothy's circumcised. See, I wonder if we think, what's the easiest way to get Christians? But I wonder if Paul asks, God, big or small, rugged mountains to traverse, people to circumcise, whatever, what do you want me to do? We might say, what's the path of least resistance? Discipleship says, what's the path, period? Are you willing to obey that? 
That's what Paul and Timothy does. Verse 4, as they traveled through the towns, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem for the people to observe. Again, these were churches that Paul and Barnabas had already previously planted. So it's like hearing, the church in Jerusalem is glad you're here. Here's what they said. Verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Busyness can and should be sacrificial, but it's not in vain if it produces fruit. Christian, if we want to take the path of least resistance, and if we want to do as little amount as possible as far as our walk with the Lord in our lives, we really have no reason to be saddened or disappointed when the fruit is small, right? It's like saying, I don't get why the floor is so dirty. I ran a broom across it a few months ago. What in the world? The next time that you or I are saddened at, why is the church not growing? Why aren't people coming? What are we doing? Physical effort. Who are we inviting, which involves phones or talking to people? How often are we praying? Sacrificial busyness produces fruit. Paul and Silas traverse rugged mountains. Timothy circumcised himself. Labor, sacrifice, and the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are too busy to be deterred. They don't have time for spats in the church. They don't need to overthink Timothy being circumcised. People need to be saved. (laughs) A mission needs to go forward. Let's not dwell on the small things. Let's head out for the big things that God's called us to. And I think a lot of us stop ourselves, but we're not qualified. We're too sinful. But what if we... And I think Paul, Christian-killing, stubborn-minded, not-forgiving Mark, Barnabas-splitting Paul, says having sinned or not, making the right choices all the time or not, I'm going to press on by God's grace. Again, not just a saying. By God's grace and and in faith, doing what he's called me to do. I think a lot of us love deliberating and calling it holy (laughs) when that deliberation just keeps us from being obedient. Let's just be honest. Paul and Silas are too busy to be deterred. They're sacrificially busy and it produces fruit. But then God intervenes and he does this strange thing. We head into the second movement of our study and we read about selective seed throwing. Again, that story that Everett read for us. And here in Acts, we have this interesting passage where Paul and company, they just want to spread the word of God. They just want to see people saved, anybody saved. But it's not happening because God is stopping them. Let's read this passage together in verses 6 through 10. I have the map up here or before you if you want to follow along with all those names. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. That region of Asia has cities like Ephesus and Colossae. If you know the books of Ephesians and Colossians, so Paul is going to later visit those and write letters to them. Verse 7, when they came to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, which is a port city on the coast of the Aegean Sea, a little bit southeast of 
Macedonia. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. And then in verse 10, Luke, the author, is going to confirm that it was God, that name, God, who had been directing them. And so, for me, this is one of the most clearest passages in the Scripture alluding to the Trinity. The three names of the triune God used to talk about one overarching directive on Paul and his company. But as I said, it's rather weird. We began by remembering that Jesus is God for all, for Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews. But here, Paul and Silas and Timothy are trying to minister, and they apparently had designs to go into. Uh, These are all just certain regions where they wanted to go. And all of this is taking place in modern-day Turkey, but God is closing doors. Certain people at this point in time are not going to hear the gospel. While we don't really know, and it doesn't really go any deeper than this, what we can conclude by the following verses, verse 9 we read, During the night Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, Cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. We don't know how God had hindered exactly the uh, first attempts that Paul and Silas and Timothy, where they were trying to minister. Was it just providence? Did certain people or certain circumstances prevent them? Were there other visions or dreams? Were there just impressions on the heart? We don't know. What is recorded in Supernatural is this vision of a Macedonian man. We're not told who the man is or how he is known to be of Macedonia. My guess is that maybe it's a lot like the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that occasion when Peter, James, and John, and Jesus, Moses, and Elijah show up, and the disciples knew it's them? I've always wondered how. (laughs) It's not like they lived in their time. Were their name tags? I mean... They didn't live in Moses and Elijah's time. There were no pictures, but I'm assuming the Holy Spirit just revealed to them these two people are Moses and Elijah. I'm assuming it's the same in this vision for Paul. For whatever reason, Paul knows that this man is from Macedonia. But because theologians need to make their PhDs somehow, this doesn't keep them from speculating. (laughs) Some have uh, speculated that this man is actually Luke. The author himself. Luke begins to make a cameo appearance. Do you hear the pronoun changes in verse 10? It says, After he had seen this vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Luke is now part of this group. While I see no reason whatsoever, nor in any other reason from the Scripture, to even remotely suggest That Luke is the Macedonian man. I do believe that somewhere between Antioch and Troas, was where we're at right now in verse 8, Luke joined Paul, Silas, and Timothy and whoever else is with them. The pronouns we and us suggest so. Now, again, these are just a few verses, but we have to know all about the busyness and seeming setbacks that have to be taking place. Paul and Silas have Timothy in tow. They have plans of ministry, and for whatever reasons, they're thwarted. Doors are closing. And again, unless God outright says, no, I have other people for you, that's got to be a little disheartening when those doors are closed, right? Have any of you ever been there? You think you're doing something right, going something about the right way, but your efforts 
seem to be simultaneously failing. I'm doing the right thing, God. What's the matter? (laughs) I'm trying to do this for you, God. What's so bad about witnessing, about wanting to go out and live with abandon and, and head out in the unknown with a Bible and bring some people to Jesus? Why is this happening? I like that Luke records for us that Paul, Silas, and Timothy just keep trekking. Okay, we can't go in there, so let's just keep going. And they keep ministering because they're too busy to be deterred. (laughs) They're too busy with doing God's mission that they even receive closed doors on His mission. They're too busy to, to get disheartened and to throw in the towel. They're on mission. In fact, too, did you note the difference in verse 10? It's interesting that it said Paul got the vision in verse 9, but then Luke writes, we, basically we, all decided really to be obedient to that vision. I don't know, maybe the culture is is so different than it is now, but I can tell you that it won't go down as easy as the book of Acts in today's world, right? Can you imagine a church all deciding to head out on a ship and go somewhere they've never been when they've missed and passed over certain regions that required less funds and provisions to head into because an established leader among them had a vision? I don't know. I can just hear it all right. Well, Paul, that's what you said, but uh, is everyone here saved yet? <laughs> and didn't Jesus, didn't Jesus say God so loved the world and whoever called on Him would be saved? If you have people that you want to see saved... If you have a heart for a certain people, a certain place, a group of people, but it feels like closed doors, no opportunities, it's just not going to happen. Maybe the Lord has a Macedonian man up his sleeve, if you catch my drift. Maybe there's a person or some people in your life right now that you're too busy worrying about other people to see them. You're too certain that God wants you to save the people that you want to see saved, that you're missing out on the people He wants you to save right now. It doesn't mean your people will never come to be saved. It just means God knows when the soil's ready, right? God knows where to direct the proverbial seed you'll be throwing. For Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, this sacrificial busyness and this selective seed throwing comes to salvation and settling. Again, we we see the words say one thing, but it represents to us intense sacrificial labor. It says, from Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace the next day to Neapolis, a port on the mainland, and from there to Philippi, which is actually a 10-mile hike up over hills and then down into some plains to get to a Roman colony in a leading city of the district of Macedonia getting passage on boats, hiking over hills again, coming to a brand new city. And then we read in verse 13, On the Sabbath day we went outside the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. They're they're far out of the range of Israel. And what a synagogue required in any city was at least ten participating men. And apparently the Jewish community is sparse in Philippi, or maybe at least the practicing Jewish community. Some commentators tell me that bodies of water were um, often the desired meeting place if a synagogue was absent because there were some Jewish ceremonial washings that needed to take place. 
So these women are coming here to gather, likely to read scriptures. And then if any, on any given day, if a Jewish minister happens to be passing through, such as Paul, Silas, Timothy, or Luke, uh, or Luke is a Gentile, but they would likely be received. It would be like a visiting minister when you had no pastor. Great. Verse 14, a God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. Commentators always like to get surprised by Luke's description of people. Uh, I believe this to be the second person in Acts that gets this sort of description prior to being saved. She is a God-fearing woman, but she's not saved yet. But Luke is about to tell us her conversion story. But she was already God-fearing. Interesting. This is like Cornelius, the God-fearing Roman centurion who was already seeking about God. But because of his humble heart, God brought him Peter who instructed him about the gospel of Christ. A few things about Lydia. Thyatira was in that region that Paul was not allowed to go into, Asia. Um, it was a city actually well known for its wool and dyeing. Purple is an expensive dye too, and the fact that Lydia is going to open up her house to the church to meet in, it suggests that she's probably fairly well-to-do. And this God-fearing Lydia was listening to Paul, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. A few things are required for conversion. Luke told us a few things were required in this instance. First, Paul spoke. That's a human speaking. Second, we're told that she was listening. Thirdly, we're told that the Lord opened her heart to respond. Some Christians like to emphasize the human element. Other Christians like to emphasize the Lord, the God, the supernatural element. I have this weird compulsion where I like to emphasize what the Bible emphasizes and give them both equal emphasis. You can preach and evangelize and persuade all you want, but it will do absolutely nothing if that person is not listening. That person can listen all day long, but if God is not moving upon their darkened, depraved mind, they're just not going to believe. If God's prepared a heart to receive His Word, I believe nothing's going to happen if people aren't obedient to do what He's calling them to do. Now, people can take argument with that and say, well, God will always get his way no matter what. It's, it's not that contingent on people. God's going to save everyone he wants to save. Great, but what we get in the scriptures are stories about people being faithful to go out and evangelize. Like Paul and Silas here. We don't have God showing up every single day in vacuums and just saving people. Paul, our evangelist here, understands this. He writes later in life, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. But then he says, how then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Paul believes in the power of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, the necessity of the Holy Spirit for anyone to respond in faith to the gospel but he just as emphatically believes of the necessity of obedient hearts to be faithful to speak his mission. It's why Paul is on a second missionary trip, going over rugged mountaintops, taking passages on boats, and showing up at far Greek cities he's never been to. He's sacrificially busy, and because he is, it produces fruit. After she, Lydia, and her household 
Um, which was a common reality in that day. If the host of a given house converted, their house would be expected to. It's rather shocking to our 21st century personal faith experiences. Oh, only people who have personal faith in Christ are converted. Even so, it is what it is. They were baptized. She, Lydia, urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Later in this story, in chapter 16, and, and also Paul's very letter to this town, Philippians, uh, would suggest that Lydia's house, for all intents and purposes, becomes the church, as we would call it, a building of the church, you would say, a meeting house here. But for now, Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, and whoever else is with them would get to put up their proverbial cots in a new, in a new believer's house in Philippi, of all places, away from their families, We're told that Paul's not married. We don't know about any of the other people. We don't know about the jobs they left or how they're being provided for now. We don't know if Paul's hired them in his tent-making job. Acts 18.3 tells us he makes tents. But here's the point. Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, Lydia, they all have a primary occupation. Think about the etymology of that word, occupation. They're occupied by the call of Christ, and everything is radically yielding to that primary occupation. They're too busy to be deterred. You know, I I have come to this book of Acts, as many Christians have, with awe, with a tinge of regret and conviction, because we see, bam, Pentecost, Holy Spirit, fire, Peter heading over to Roman centurion houses, the church coming together saying God's for everybody. Antioch church planning and sending out missionaries. And we see Paul and his companions saving the world. And we Christians sit back in our easy chair reading the book of Acts for the 98th time in the 50th English translation we found. And we wonder, wow, what a book. What a time. And then we move on to television. We move on to sports shows. We return to our jobs wondering How do we recapture that fiery power of the Holy Spirit to do so many things? Paul also writes in Romans 12, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What if the mind renewal here is just this today, folks? What if your career who you thought you are in life, what you write down on the paper when it says occupation, what if that identity is nothing but this, called of God? Saints, where the King James would say it, is sometimes called set-apart ones or called-out ones in other translations. What if that's your primary occupation as a Christian? What if the Son in your universe is the Son of God, Christ And everything in your life revolves around that son. So I'm no longer a pastor or preacher by trade trying to stay on top of my Christian stuff to be a good Christian. And you're no longer a farmer or a retired or a grandparent or a dad or a mom or a housewife or a technician or a firefighter or whatever by trade, by occupation. But you are a Christian. 
And just as I'm not trying to get Christianity to fit into my being a husband and dad, but I'm letting husband, dad, and pastor live out from my Christianity. What if it's my calling as Christian to always present my body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God? What if that is my true worship? I don't know, maybe you're like me and you've counted up hours in the church, hours in the Bible, hours in prayer, primarily as where you fill up your Christian tank. But what if the truth is this? God is saying, when I called you out, I I didn't give you a new gas tank for life. I gave you a new car. Period. A new identity. Our hope today, our example today, is Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. Let's get too busy to be deterred by the lesser things in life. Let's not look at everything as work, too much effort, too much Christian stuff. It makes me feel guilty. But instead, may God grab our hearts to where we're too busy to be deterred. Indeed, we must be about His mission, and it's what captures our hearts most. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy in this culture. First of all, it's easy to blame the culture, and that's not what I'm getting at, but it is easy in this culture to look at our Christianity as just another element of our schedules. Church is what I do on Sunday. Reading the Bible is what I do before bedtime. Praying is what I do before meals. But I have all this other time to do what I want to do. Father, when the opposite should be true, have we ever stopped to ask and pray and say, Lord, what's your schedule for me this week? And if you're so gracious to leave some time for other things, great. But if not, uh, that's okay because your desires are my desires. Father, if we ever read the book of Acts and wonder, where is that at? The sad truth is, is it's right here for the taking in front of us. Help us to be obedient and faithful. Many of us think too little of our lives. But you didn't save us in places where where we're at for no reason. You saved us, and you know right where we're at. You know who our neighbors are. You know what our lives are like. And I believe you have missions for us to be doing. Father, I pray that people would take up the challenge of praying. Is there a discipleship relationship you want me in? Is there a mission you have for my life? I'm sorry for deliberating. Sorry that I am too scared of the risks. Help me to be obedient. Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray that you would apply this truth in our hearts and lives for the remainder this week and and remainder of our lives. Give us people to minister to and help us to be obedient this very week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.